Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Grinch. Today, we are going to have an incredible episode. Even though it's not on a Monday, we're still going to have a great episode. No matter what, hopefully everyone enjoyed the great Labor Day weekend. We're going to hopefully have a shorter episode today, but every time I say we're going to have a shorter episode, we then end up having an hour and a half long episode. But I, we will see what happens with this. We have a few topics to cover, and, th- and then we have a lot of cognitive questions to go over at the end of the podcast. So that is what we're going to go over today. And so the first big topic to discuss, likely what everyone and our listeners are interested in and what's been the big news over the weekend. We haven't had too much news, but this has been a news development over the weekend, is that Elon Musk is taking on the Anti-Defamation League, the ADL. Over accusations, the ADL has been throttling Twitter's business, or X. We're going to call it Twitter. I don't like calling it X, even though it technically is X. Even with Elon, he says X slash Twitter. So we're going to say Twitter, um, even though it's properly X. That's just how we're going to do it for right now and for this episode. So they've been throttling the business. He's estimated he's lost billions of dollars, and he's considering that he wants to file a defamation lawsuit against the Anti-Defamation League. And he also is claiming that he is going to release the ADL files and the communications that Twitter has had with the anti-hate group and see where that arises and what comes out of that. So this is a big move because Elon's had a tense relationship with the ADL ever since he was in talks to buy Twitter. And even when he first bought Twitter, you know, the ADL really was attacking him a lot. And he was trying to make, you know, meet with them to say, oh, I'll do this. Please, you know, don't scare off our advertisers. And, well, they've still been scaring off the advertisers and saying they're not banning enough people. They're not censoring enough speech. And going after them to say, to file a lawsuit saying, like, you know, these spurious accusations actually do real harm to our damage. And they can't be backed up by credible evidence of whatever they're trying to claim. Then that could be. A major milestone. Now, I don't know how well a lawsuit will do because this is a little bit of unprecedented ground to go on. Because, you know, for most, a lot of defamation or libel suits, it's generally something saying, you're saying you're just like making up a lie about somebody. Say, uh, with the Covington Catholic case, they're saying this kid was a white supremacist and was acting racistly towards that Indian guy. Well, that was not the case. Thus, they're committing libel. Or defamation or just saying someone's a pedophile and they're not actually a pedophile it would be have to be that case and here they're saying it's a group saying they're allowing you know all this types of anti-semitism or hate and maybe they could provide evidence of that but it's also saying that you know that twitter is a sponsor of hate speech or is a spreader of hate speech and it's a little bit more you know that's a little bit less concrete territory there it's a little bit more ambiguous when you come to that territory now there have been instances of this these cases going before there have been a couple of lawsuits against the SPLC there was one where a Muslim uh, Majid Nawaz or something like that who's a British guy who sued them I think I'm getting his last name I'm pretty sure the first name is Majid who is like a rationalist critique critic of Islam and the SPLC had labeled him like an Islamophobe and 
all these things. And he gets filed suit against them, but the SPLC settled out of court, likely to avoid discovery and maybe over the fear that they would lose in court. Um, but they've also have a case going through the courts right now where an immigration restrictionist group is filing, you know, is filing a suit against the SPLC over claiming the group is a hate group and how it's done reputational damage to them. And it's gone forward to the discovery stage, which I'm pretty sure the discovery stage and it's advanced further than any other lawsuit against the SPLC has gone before because they've been sued a lot. And most of the time it's been thrown out or as in the case against the Muslim guy, they have settled out of court. And this has happened, you know, this is so that's a big deal. And it's a similar grounds because it's, you know, a group saying that due to the SPLC's power and influence, that the label of a, of a hate group, you know, does tremendous damage to, you know, a group or an individual who's been accused of that. And they can prove that. And it's unfair to allow one such group that uses arbitrary standards to have this power to just destroy groups and hurt them financially and reputationally. And that would be some of the similar grounds that Elon would tread if he decided to sue the ADL. There's also people were pointing out in Colorado, there was this case is over 20 years ago is from 2000 where the ADL lost a lawsuit and were had to owe millions of dollars to a couple who had gotten into a dispute, a neighbor dispute with <laughs> with their Jewish neighbors and the Jewish neighbors claimed they were anti-Semites. And then the ADL got involved and smeared them as anti-Semites. And then they were able to prove in court that this is like a dubious accusation. And thus they won their defamation suit against the ADL. Here, uh, it's a little less, you know, it's not as straightforward <laughs> as that case. And it's not a, you know, it's the wealthiest person in the world filing suit against them over the over the damage they're doing to his business and the damage that they're doing and trying to attract advertisers. So I don't know how well it would go, but I fully support a lawsuit. If it went to discovery, it'd be great. I don't know. In some cases, they don't need... It'd also be great if he releases these files, these communications of them pressuring past Twitter execs and also the communications they've had with Elon over the pressure they've exerted and what type of speech that they've tried to censor and try to ban. Uh, you know, there's the obvious people that they list, you know, like Nick Fuentes, Jared Taylor, many other people. You know, they even complain about Andrew Tate and Alex Jones and people like that who, you know, they're never, uh, you know, they still have some mainstream reputation, you could say. But they go after a wide swath of people. But then there are people that are surprising that they're going over, going after, like Libs of TikTok, which is by a Jewish woman. And they say... That they have to take that account off, even though libs of TikTok just post uh, insane leftist stuff from TikTok and from others and other videos and just post the videos and says, this is what they're like. But ADL says that has to be taken off because it's spreading hate and we can't have hate on social media. And so there could be a lot of people that they've tried to say you have to take down that they've never even listed before on their website. So it'll be interesting if that comes out and it really shows how the sausage is made with these censorship platforms and these censorship groups, then how they control speech in this country and how they pressure corporations, the government, and even small businesses and what they can and cannot, cannot allow. 
And this all happened because, you know, the hashtag ban the ADL, ADL came out and said that the ADL shouldn't be allowed on Twitter. That probably wouldn't solve the situation. The real situation would be suing them and releasing the files to expose them to the world and what they're doing and to try to curb their power over these big, over these social media platforms. I was banning them. Um, and they would up their, if you just said, okay, we're going to ban you. It's not like they're going to like, oh no, we, we lost our access to the public forum. Instead, they would wield, <laughs> would ensure that more people boycott Twitter. So it's better to sue them and to release the files and try to embarrass them and try to make it uncomfortable where their stance is and then try to weaken their grip on other sectors of American life, which would be it. I mean, ban the ADL, of course, is coming from a good uh, scenario or going from a good and understandable place because, you know, they're not a good group. They are a malicious group in the American, you know, public American politics and American society. So it'd be good to expose them and to try to shun them aside. But, you know, simply deleting them from Twitter doesn't really solve the situation. But suing them and releasing the files is a very good decision. And I hope he goes forward with it. It's on. It's unclear. This could just be a negotiating tactic that Elon is. You know, he's throwing a fit on social media, and maybe he feels that this could be a way to get, you know, ADL to come to the table with him and make concessions. I don't know. I don't know what concessions they would make or what they would want to say, and they may feel that they want a, the lawsuit to bring on. So we'll have to see. But hopefully, he does release at least release the ADL files. That would be a very important move because it is. These groups, along with the Southern Poverty Law Center, ADL is more powerful and more influential than the Southern Poverty Law Center, which we'll explain why in a moment. But the, you know, those groups are what not only, you know, these tech companies go to say, well, what's hate speech? What should we allow? They go to these companies. There's a few others, but primarily the ADL and the SPLC. And it's not just them that go to them. It's also the federal government relies on them to provide them with who's you know, a scary terrorist and a domestic threat. The domestic extremism, uh, you know, focus of the federal government is primarily influenced by the ADL and the SPLC. When they want files and information on people, they go to those two groups. Those two groups provide the advice and, and the direction that the FBI, the Department of Justice, and all these other agencies go when they want to focus on these matters. And so they go to them. And that's and that's always one to say, if you want to see what the federal government focuses on, like what individuals that they're looking after, you can easily go find that out by looking at the ADL and the SPLC's website. Whoever they're talking about and focusing on a lot, that's who the federal government is also focusing on and considering a lot and seeing as like who's a big danger. So if you see a lot of articles on a certain individual or a group, on the SPLC's website or the ADL's website, then that's a group that the FBI is closely monitoring because they rely on these groups. And so they determine a lot. That's a that's a tremendous amount of power that it's not just, this is simply not just a private group, you know, say like a news media outlet that's saying, we don't like these people and we're wanting to attack them to show their danger. That's simply, that's simply not the case. It's These are groups where the government goes and to these groups, and if you get attacked by them, they then have law enforcement attention on you simply for the political beliefs you're espousing and why you 
and your own opinions and your own actions and your own activities that are likely legal. But the fact is, is that if the AD on the SPLC say it's hateful or racist or anti-Semitic or bigoted, whatever, or even like homophobic and stuff, which is now something that the ADL focuses on. It's, you know, in the past, it was just focused on who are the anti-Semites and they would occasionally, you know, that would also cover racists and the people they call racist. But now they include all these conservative enemies. It's like if you're anti-gay or anti-trans or all these types of things that they wouldn't have focused on under their past leader, uh, Abe Foxman, who was a tremendous asshole <laughs> and not a good guy. You guys should watch the documentary Defamation, which is very good documentary on Abe Foxman's ADL, which Jonathan Greenblatt is a little bit different because he's taken the group into being a more explicitly liberal left-wing group while Abe Foxman is clearly like left-wing, but he did make a point to just try to be nonpartisan and not try to take up all these issues that the Democratic Party cares about and focus on that, which now Greenblatt is doing. It just focused on... Um, technically anti-Semitism, but that also would include racism and other things. Uh, he would viciously attack Pat Buchanan and stuff. This is not to say that Abe Foxman was good or anything. I'm just saying that there was a different focus there, which has made the ADL more open to criticism from the right because they're so obviously a vehicle of the left now, as opposed to before where they at least tried to pretend that they're nonpartisan. Obviously, we know they're not, they're not nonpartisan. But it was enough to convince, you know, Republicans and conservatives that this is a group they have to respect and their word matters. But now conservatives seeing that this is just an openly left wing group that only attacks conservatives, then they, you know, are more willing to criticize them. But while conservatives have, are more willing to criticize them, they still have that stature. They still have that connections with corporations and the federal government. And what they say matters because, you know, if they if. And they provide training for schools and other and other and numerous other institutions in, in society. That's like a thing. It's that the ADL and SPLC provide ADL especially provides all this training, you know, materials of like spotting racism and how to defeat bigotry in schools and businesses. So this is simply not just some random, you know, website that's, you know, expressing its point of view and its opinion. These are powerful institutions that can determine whether you know, the FBI is monitoring your communication, whether you are able to keep a job for having certain points of view. It can criminalize certain opinions, criminal, uh, discriminate against certain groups if they are targeted, ensure that they can't have public events like what SBLC is now doing against Moms for Liberty, which is, you know, just a standard conservative group. But they say it's a hate group because they're noticing how effective this group is in going after these left wing programming in schools. So they're now targeted. But the SPLC and ADL are a little bit different because the ADL is more powerful and influential. And they ADL still has, it always had more stature than the SPLC, but it still has more stature than the SPLC today. ADL came out as just like, it's a Jewish interest group. You know, it's supposed to be nonpartisan and it's focused on anti-Semitism. And it's always had a lot more political connections than the SPLC. SPLC has always been a left-wing group. You know, it's always been that. But, it, you know, in the two th 90s and 2000s, conservatives took it more seriously. And they would say, oh, if the Southern Poverty Law Center is saying something, that we have to pay attention because they did all this great work defeating the Klan and neo-Nazis. So we have to pay attention to them. 
That's been changing since the 2010s because when the SPLC started targeting groups that were going after, you know, were opposed to gay marriage, you know, when they are putting the Family Research Council and groups like that on its hate on its hate map, you know, that made conservatives start to turn against them. And when there was a shooting at the media, um, it was a Family Research Council, I believe, where in 2012, which was a guy relying on their hate map. You know, this made conservatives more opposed to them. But what they say still mattered even after that. And it definitely matters with the ADL. Because like conservatives, even though they say they criticize the group as left-wing groups and stuff, they still care more about what they say and are more worried about what they say than they are about, you know, HuffPost or CNN or the standard media outlets. So I can bring up an example of what happened when the Daily Caller was attacked by the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2017 you know and they had been well established you know the daily caller written several hit pieces and attack pieces on the splc and showing how left-wing they are and how you know they added ben carson to a hate figure group you know and they're attacking ben carson and all these other mainstream conservative figures like how could you trust the splc they're such a bad group but when the splc wrote a published a hit piece on the Daily Caller shortly after Charlottesville saying that about their white nationalist connections, primarily focused on uh, yours truly, the, you know, the Daily Caller panicked. You know, they nearly fired me simply for, you know, the SPLC, like saying like, oh, he's in pictures with these, with these people. Oh, he follows this person on Twitter. How he, how can we, how can the Daily Caller have someone who's uh, you know, once hung out with evil white nationalists and maybe follows like the wrong accounts on Twitter. And all this information was already known to the Daily Caller because there had been like an Antifa hit piece on me uh, a year before. They all, management all knew about it, but they were freaked out that the SPLC was attacking them and they were frightened by it. And they nearly fired me over that just for that, if, just for that case. And there was another guy at the Caller who was starting to do work at a conservative radio station. And that radio station was demanding that he cut off all ties to the Daily Caller because of this SPLC hit piece. And the SPLC hit piece uh, cost me going on Fox News again due to the fact that because that week I was supposed to go on Fox and Friends to talk about an article I wrote. And then the SPL publishes the article and then the Fox News, they cancel the interview and I was never allowed back on Fox News again after that. So they definitely, conservative media definitely cares about what these groups say. Um, they probably, even though that was six years ago, I think, you know, they may not care as much today as they did about the SPLC six years ago, especially because they become even more flagrantly left wing. Uh, you can see that with the attacks on Moms for Liberty. And you can also see that Heritage Foundation is publishes a lot of hit pieces on the SPLC now, which they wouldn't have done six years ago, but there's still that worry about what they say. And this and this goes even more for the ADL because the ADL has more political power. You know, it's something that Republican politicians have to pay attention to, which Republican politicians don't give a shit about the SPLC. They have no connections to the, you know, the SPLC has like no lobbyists or any type of connections to those types of lawmakers, but the ADL has... And the ADL also has closer ties with the Democratic Party as well. And more corporate ties and numerous other things. You know, the SPLC is pretty powerful, but the ADL is more powerful. But with all that said, even with the criticism, as I say, 
being attacked by those two groups matters more than, and even this to conservatives, than it does by a standard media outlet. Like if you get a hit piece on you in The Atlantic or, um, I don't know, Salon or Daily Beast or one of these places, you know, conservatives could just shrug at it and just say, oh, well, who cares? But if you get it at SPLC or ADL, they worry. And that also social media worries because if you're getting attacked by those places, they can get you banned. As I remember when um, Nick Fuentes got banned in 2021. Yeah, it was two years ago. You know, the SPLC and ADL in the days leading up had both written hit pieces on Nick saying social media, Twitter has to ban Nick, Nick. And they sure enough did. So they do have that power. While if, you know, HuffPost says they have to ban Nick, you know, they could ignore it. Or they're more willing to ignore it. That's a better way to say it. So that that's also the type of influence they have. So it's very important that Elon goes after the ADL and goes after all these other groups that are responsible for it. It's largely ADL, if you want to say who's the primary culprit or the most important. It's the ADL more than the SPLC. SPLC has even come more far left. I think they've had, the SPLC has lost a significant amount of its stature. ADL has not... You know, a little bit of like conservatives are more critical of it. And also a lot of leftists are critical of it because they're too uh, pro-Israel, which a lot of the left, the far left at least, you know, the birdie bro element, not not the Democratic Party establishment, but the birdie bro element has become much more anti-Israel over the past 20 years. And they've become more numerous. That hasn't been represented in the party establishment and the party leadership yet. But who knows? We could it could that could change in ten years. But there, there's it still has the incredible amount of statures that these corporations, government, and all those still listen to them to a great extent. They still a lot of those same elements still listen to the SBLC. But the SBLC does not have nearly the amount of stature at once it once did 10 years ago a lot of social media companies seem to want to ignore the SPLC and just like we don't give a shit they don't seem to cooperate as much with these uh, companies and corporations and schools as much as they do with the ADL and the SPLC is becoming more reflective of that Bernie bro element that's another difference is that the SPLC, all their Antifa reporters always like have like free Palestine and that stuff, which the ADL would never allow anyone associated with them to do that type of stuff. Uh, so that is like a, a difference between the two. But they're both, you know, obviously left wing and that's apparent for conservatives. And it's a good thing that conservatives have fully turned on not just the SPLC, but are now turning on the ADL. And another good thing is I think that at least for Zuckerberg and Musk, is that they don't really want to do the same type of censorship that they were doing in 2020. Obviously, Elon is not going to do that. But Zuckerberg is also was tired of that because he made this bet with Facebook and Instagram that they were going to follow the Democrat line on censorship. They were going to ensure that Trump was not elected. And they were doing this to please Democrats in order to secure their business interests. He does all this to help them win, and then the Democrats hurt the business interests of Facebook, and they're still demanding all these investigations and stuff, and still looking at you know violations of their business model and other things. They did not get the the benefit from Dem- Democrats and being powered that they expected. And also, you have to remember is that during the Trump years, Facebook was the primary target 
of all these censorship efforts and the political intimidation by Democrats. They would always say, like, Facebook is responsible for terrorism and the rise in white nationalism and the rise in extremism. And they would always hammer Facebook the most, more so than YouTube, more so than Twitter at that time. That was their main target for intimidation in the late 2010s. But now, you know, that even Facebook, you know, they did all that. You know, Facebook was very censorious. Uh, there was way more censorship on Facebook than arguably any other platform. You know, they had an explicit policy saying we're banning white nationalism. And so they banned all these people like Faith Goldie and others who would say that they're not white nationalists and would, you know, disagree with that label. But allowing they allowed them to ban an entire political ideology from their platform. And they also would ban mass ban groups. And if you were in a group, they would just like ban you or just random people that, you know, the SPLC and ADL didn't like, even if they weren't posting anything on Facebook, you know, it was just a personal thing they had for them. They would ban them. They'd find and ban these people from the platform. But Facebook, you know, realized that it was a bad bet to go with Democrats. And so they don't want to work to help the Democrats win again. You know, they don't want to use the censorship model. All these policies are still in place. It's not going to be like 2016, but it's not going to be like 2020 either, where, you know, social media really push the pedal to the metal to help Democrats win. I don't think social media companies are at least for Facebook and Twitter or X are going to do that again. Even with YouTube, YouTube is also very censorious. I mean, it's run by Google, which Google you know, it's much more tied in with the democratic power infrastructure than Facebook and Twitter. You know, they've been relenting a little bit because they've been saying, oh, well, now it's okay to question the 2020 election. You know, they're not censoring COVID stuff anymore. You know, skepticism around COVID and the lockdowns like they did. So there is a little, there is, you know, it's not quite the free speech we had pre-Trump. Uh, You know, in the glory days of 2015 and 2016, before the media and the Democrats began heavily pressuring these companies to censor in order to prevent another Trump. But now, you know, there is it's much better than it was in 2020, which 2020 was maybe the worst in social media censorship. And then 2021, where they would just ban people for just for things that were later turned out to be true about covid Uh, for saying that they had any skepticism of the 2020 election because everyone was required to believe that the 2020 election was the freest and fairest election in human history or you would lose your YouTube channel. And so those things were what was going on in 2020. So you're not going to have a repeat in 2024 with that, which I think that's a bit of a white pill when we can see the election. I they're not going to be able to pressure these companies to do that same level of censorship and rigging the election that they did in 2020. Will that be enough to help Trump? Will that be enough to help Republicans? We will see, but it will be something, a positive development, I think. So that's something else to see from this case of Elon's battle with the ADL. But that's it for this that topic. We're going to move on to some other topics uh, before we get to all the cotton league questions. And the next topic is a very important topic. We're going to talk about a little bit about Jimmy Buffett and the death of Jimmy Buffett. Um, we like to get some cultural issues here. I just want to expand on a tweet I had about Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett, of course, died uh, last weekend oh, due to uh, complications of skin cancer. He died at 76. 
And one thing I realized is that a lot of Zoomers don't know who the hell Jimmy Buffett is. There's the people of a certain age who don't know who Jimmy Buffett is, which is like so crazy to me that they would not know who Jimmy Buffett is. Like Jimmy Buffett, uh, you know, even though I'm a little bit younger than maybe his target audience of boomers and Gen Xers, it's definitely boomers. But even millennial, most millennials would know who he is. You know, they, he was like, that would be a name that we constantly reference in movies and TV shows. And, you know, he had a big hit with a uh, duet with Alan Jackson back in the 2000s with the song It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. Uh, so if you're familiar with country music, that was like the biggest song, uh, one of the biggest songs of the year it came out. I think it came out in 2006. Massive, massive song. So people would be aware. And Buffett was like, oh, wow, he's singing along with Alan Jackson. This is huge. Like, because Buffett's just a cultural icon. But, like, Zoomers, for some reason, I've never heard of this guy. But it is a very boomer uh, person. He is an icon for boomers and the retired generation. So there is some animosity towards them. But there was a lot of, um, you know, Richard Hanani had some funny takes about uh, Jimmy Buffett saying, like, you know, this it was a little bit silly. His somebody sent me he had a uh, paywall tweet about Jimmy Buffett that I thought had some interesting points, but he had uh, he was attacking him in his uh, non paywall thing for saying he encouraged uh, he didn't encourage hard work and he instead encouraged people to be bums and just drink on the beach, which is like that's supposed to be most music. What like it would be terrible music if it's, you're celebrating like working overtime or something and like working hard and you know saving up for a mortgage that would make for very bad music and very bad art but at the same time jimmy buffett isn't really good music or good art in itself because true art and true and good music you want to have it express like deep emotions you want it to have expressed conflict of life and the the troubles of life and the travails of life and overcoming them and having this as I'm going to keep repeating the struggle in life, you know, there's a real sense of that's where true emotions come from. And that's why most music focuses on uh, more and even art itself focuses on more the darker aspects of life. You know, people don't write music or movies about like a job promotion or the things that are really, you know, good things in life are like having an ice cream sundae or something. You know, they focus on death and heartbreak and you know, job loss and the, the, the things in life that strike meaning and where you learn about yourself and the, you know, the struggle in life. And that's the real sense of art and music. But with Jimmy Buffett, you know, it's just about having a cheeseburger in paradise and having a good time. And we're just having, it's five o'clock somewhere. We're having a drink. And this is really what our life should be about is just living for happy hour. And this is the great ideal for a lot of the American bourgeoisie. It's just to have, you know, this comfortable, sedentary life where we're going on vacation and we're living for vacation. Then that's really like the great promise of the of what the American dream is, is that you get you have the ability to go and <laughs> to a tropical place where it can be five o'clock all the time. <laughs> And that is the Jimmy Buffett dream. So I said he was like America's Wagner or the American middle bourgeoisie's Wagner because, you know, for the 19th century, you know, German middle class, you know, they saw themselves in Wagner and these great aspirations and ideals in the Wagnerian opera is what they aspire to, to have this great nation and this 
myth, mythical state that they could that they could achieve and aspire to is that what that's what they wanted and it was very much expressing their hopes dreams and myths of those people and Jimmy Buffett expresses that for the American middle class in a lot of ways. And that's why people are getting very incensed by any criticism of Jimmy Buffett. And they're like, oh, he's so deep. It's so meaningful with Jimmy Buffett. It's like, it's like just having a cheeseburger in paradise. Like I had people who were like saying, oh, you got to listen to the deep cuts of Jimmy Buffett. It's like uh, cheeseburger in paradise is what he's about. Okay, <laughs> It's like that is that is the meaning of Jimmy Buffett. And that's what it tracks all the parrot heads and the parrot heads are the people who are like huge Jimmy Buffett fans would go and tour around, go to his tours and stuff and enjoy his music. And it's very like light and upbeat has no negative qualities. You know, there's nothing wrong with life. We're just, you can just have your uh, margarita in, in a tropical location. That's all you need to worry about. So, and he even has a retirement community built on these principles where you know, it's all these old retirees basically get to live as college kids. You know, they'll show up to and play beer pong with, you know, other 70-year-olds. And they'll go out and uh, crash their golf carts in there. And also the Margaritaville retirement community, uh, unlike the villages, you know, doesn't want the people talking about politics. It just wants them focused on having fun and pretending that they're in college when they're 75 years old. And that's the that's the great dream of the American bourgeoisie, is to have that, is to, to live out uh, an entire life, is to live out your golden years as if you're in a college fraternity again. Maybe not the worst thing in the world, but it does allow people to ignore the real problems in society. If they you know, can achieve a level of prosperity where they can have a nice vacation and they can have you know, they can cordon themselves off from politics where they can view politics as a, an annoyance that they can just ignore and that they can just focus on having a good time and having their cheeseburger in paradise. I'm going to continue to use that reference. Then, you know, what, <laughs> then what else is there to be? You know, that does, that does push a lot of the American bourgeoisie, American middle class to see a lot of the problems around going on in America and just say, well, that doesn't affect me as long as I have, as long as I achieve that level of prosperity to, you know, have my beach, my beach vacation, then why should I care about this? And so Nadia brought this up with his, with his uh, paywall <laughs> tweet, which I have to insist, I do not pay for anyone's tweets, even for Hanania. You know, I'm a, I'm a, as all everyone knows, I'm a Hanania defender, but I, you know, subscribing to his tweets is a, is a bridge too far. I wouldn't subscribe to anyone's tweets. I, I one time um, signed up for the option because I thought that you had to do it. Uh, I was never approved. I'm probably not going to be approved, but I would never have tweets behind a paywall. When I start doing that, then I completely change my mind for other reasons. But I, I doubt any, I'm not going to paywall my tweets, okay? <laughs> like paywall, like, oh, to see me say it's magic, magic outbreak at IO5, you're going to have to pay for this. No, I'm not going to force the Greer heads to do that. But I just have to say, that's a that's just a bridge too far to make people pay for tweets. It's like the point of tweets is to get your opinions out there to the largest amount of people, and a paywall defeats that. But anyway, he made some good points behind his paywall tweet. So Hanani says this is not the entire post. It's a very long post, so I'm only going to read the highlights. He says, 
Uh, Buffett is different from country music. It's about life as a permanent spring break, no matter how old you are. This is my impression from knowing his five or six blah, blah, or we'll go through it. He brings up the Jimmy Buffett retirement committee in Florida and realized my impressions were entirely correct. And he says, if you have any kind of idealism, a life where you just seek out fun is disgusting. Maybe some people don't have any higher ambitions. And the question is what they should be doing. I'm not the kind of person who thinks every man should become a philosopher. The article notes how the elderly living there are often people who took their blue state pensions down to Florida. And he talks about his problems with uh, intergenerational state um, wealth transfer from young to old. One of the many more interesting parts of the article is where they mention that there is a norm against talking politics in Latitude Margaritaville because they don't want to turn into the villages 70 miles away. I get that politics melts the brains of old people and that that's a problem, but this is an overcorrection. God forbid that anything higher distracts you from your margarita and cheeseburger. This is an ugly underbelly of things I usually like. Capitalism and freedom. It gives extremely mediocre and empty people the opportunity to live their dream, which I find horrifying. Maybe it's less harmful than the villages where they spend their last days dreaming up, rounding up the immigrants, locking up Hillary, bombing Mexico, etc. God, for, God forbid we give our old people meeting, and the Buffett fans are mostly not hurting anyone. Other than the problem of the elderly being advantaged by our system and wanting to correct that, I don't have any desire to change the culture or pass the laws that would make Jimmy Buffett and his vision less influential. But if someone told me they were a super fan, I think of less of them. And he would just say that that, uh, you know, highlighted the New Yorker article about Latitude Margarita Phil, which is the retirement community. So that does have a point. You know, it doesn't have any higher vision or striving. You know, it's... All we are is about permanent spring break, which is what a lot of the American middle class wants. And it's if you look at a lot of the problems of America and why people don't stand up for things and why people, uh, you know, allow things to slide is because we have so much prosperity that we are able to give people to fulfill the most mundane and base desires that they would ever imagine. And for a lot of people, their highest vision in life is just to have a permanent spring break. And you've always had those people, you know, you know, Plato outlined those types of people, you know, that they're just motivated by what's in their belly. You know, they're motivated just by as having constant food and drink. And that's a lot of people in America who've been elevated. And there's not really a uh, philosopher kings to uh, guide society into higher ideals and a higher vision. It's just all about how we can achieve Margaritaville status. But you better be careful about criticizing Buffett because there's a lot of uh, big Buffett fans and even people on the right. Like I, I have no like I had some people who friends who were just like explaining the 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 intellectual depth of Jimmy Buffett. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me here. And generally, what they would do is like, well, he like lived a fun life and he fucked tons of hot women and like it's awesome. He made tons of money off of stupid people. And it's like, all right, first off, then that would apply to every single celebrity on earth if the if you say that because they're all doing the same type of behavior they're all making money off of stupid people they're all uh, you know and they feel that it's you know a higher thing to exploit the uh, so-called cattle and that's awesome and that the fact that they're fucking beautiful young women it's like most stars are doing that uh, unless they're gay of course <laughs> but even if they're gay they're sometimes doing that um, you know, and they, they all do this. So it's like, you know, what makes Buffett different? That's not an intellectual argument for Buffett. 
I mean, it's like, if it's fine if you listen to them. I mean, if you're on a beach, it's like, you're not going to be listening to Mayhem or, uh, you know, Deicide on the beach. You're going to be listening to Buffett. You know, you're not going to be listening to classical music either. You're going to listen to, like, tropical music and, like, oh, I'm relaxing. I'm having a good time. But if that's, like, what your highest ideal is, that's a problem. And that's a that's the issue with America is that for a lot of our people, that's all they strive for. That's their great goal in life. And that's a little, that's pretty problematic for because people just put their head in the sand and enjoy their margarita rather than seeing what's around them. And they'll accept things around them and things that are changing because as long as they have that level of prosperity where they're able to have some semblance that they can enjoy a, a life of spring break, then they'll accept these problems. So that's maybe not Buffett's fault, but I think that is a parrot head mindset that we have to be on lookout for and notice. Third topic that I want to talk about is going to be brief, and it's on favorite territory that I've always had is that also over the weekend conservatives were uh, criticizing this video by this 29-year-old woman who was saying, I'm so glad I don't have kids because I can sleep in and watch reality TV shows all day. And conservatives were uh, jumped down on this uh, TikToker's video and like saying like how empty she is and blah, blah, blah. This is a huge problem with society. Obviously, there's problems with it. Uh, but then that created more debate over how conservative messaging should be for women, what, whether these women actually want to be mothers and, you know, other things. It's just created a lot of other debates with it, which I just felt like I can jump in because, you know, I love talking about good men scarcity and I love talking about young women and uh, their, um, their habits and how they view society. But I think one thing that gets lost in this discussion over this woman, you know, claiming how she's, it doesn't have kids, which a lot of people were saying like, this is cope. She actually does want kids. And she even in a, in a subsequent video said that like, yeah, I'm waiting for Mr. Right. And I have yet to find Mr. Right. And maybe we'll have a family. And you know, 29 is maybe, um, it's not too late, you know, even though she looks uh, a little bit older for a 29-year-old, but it's it's hard to say. Uh, but, I mean, if she was like 35 or 36, you know, maybe there's, uh, uh, you know, much not much time to wait for that. But at 29, you still got a little bit of time to wait. So conservatives had a debate over, you know, there's people like Matt Walsh, who uh, the woman responded to in her, her follow-up video, who were attacking her for, you know, she's uh, you know wasting her life look how empty she is this is soulless like this is a tax which maybe that might be the case and there were people saying like this is a cope she actually wants to be a mother she wishes she was that uh, she needs a the right and non to get her into being a mom which I found that that was like really funny it's like yeah this is like a very kind of like ex-sorority girl, girl person I doubt she is ready for uh and sell and sell Pepe fourteen eighty eight to sweep her off her feet, but maybe maybe who knows? Um, that was the case, and like to turn her into a soccer mom, uh, maybe I, I don't think so though. 
And then there were just, and then there were the aggrieved parties who are like, this is why conservatives are losing the culture war because they're so mean to young people. They don't understand young people. And it's primarily coming from conservative women. Those who I noticed were not married or don't have kids were more likely to defend this woman from the attacks of the misogynistic men. Well, I noticed that a lot of the married mothers with kids were more willing to attack her because it was... Her video would have seen as attack on the married moms who, you know, that, you know, they have to defend their lifestyle against that woman, while the single women would have seen themselves in this woman and would have, you know, felt attacked by every, all the conservatives dunking on her. So that's something to keep in uh, there. And they're saying they're losing the culture over this woman, which I don't think is the case because conservatives generally sympathize more with young single women or at least a conservative influence. The conservative media in general sympathizes with young single women more than they do with young single men. And like, it's like young single men is like everyone attacks them. Like there is no defense of them uh, outside of like a nons defending them. Everyone's like, you guys are losers. You're, 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 you know, there's something fucking wrong with you. You need to put down the video games. You need to go marry a stepmom or marry a single mom or marry a fat woman. Like you need to step up and man up. And it's all your fault that these women are not married. Uh, that Generally, that's all the hatred. While a lot of conservative media upholds all these single women because a lot of the young staffers are single women and they, they share all their problems. Like, I can't find a good man. You know, good men scarcity. The reason why conservative media focuses so much on good men scarcity is because all these women bitch about it. And then the older conservative, the boomers and the Gen Xers, it's really more Gen Xers now who like sympathize with like, I can't believe you can't find a, the right man. Good men scarcity is real. Drop the video games. And that generally pushes them to attack single men instead. And then everyone wants to have a competition over who, you know, a lot of men on right wing influencers on Twitter like to brandish the fact that they're married and have kids is like proof that they're a combat veteran or equivalent to combat veteran. And they can accuse their opponents of being childless weirdos and incels and you know it's it's just usually a tactic for dunking but say compared to single young men you know they're much they're much more pro single young women than they are single young men it's like which is funny because most of the people uh, getting into this content are single young men uh, rather than single young women but about the appeals and stuff it's like the thing that's overlooked is that this woman reveals like why women are generally the most supportive of the current state affairs and the current status quo because it offers them opportunities that they would have never had before and they really do feel that that lifestyle of just sleeping in watching trash shows all day and living and focusing on themselves is like the highest thing that they could ever imagine and they feel that you know giving that up to have you know a man or have kids is this could be the worst thing in the world and they no longer are dependent on a man to provide for them or to defend them from, you know, hostile forces. They now have the state to defend them and provide for them and or a job to, you know, to do all these things that in the past, you know, they wouldn't have been able to you know, hold property. They wouldn't have been able to, uh, you know, and, you know, the <laughs> days when there wasn't as much law enforcement, you know, they needed a man, they needed uh, male protectors to defend them from other men. And all these factors that they no longer have to worry about. And that they're allowed to live out this individualistic fantasy 
free of the encumbrances of motherhood. And that's a very appealing vision for a lot of single women. And it's hard to get them to marry because for a lot of them in their 20s, they're living a dream lifestyle that could have never been imagined. And there's all these TV shows that highlighted from Emily in Paris to Sex in the City that shows, even though Sex in the City was about, well, now it's about like 50 and 60-something women, but in, in its heyday, it was about 30-something and 40-something women. But they all want to live that lifestyle that they're like, they're in the big city, they're you know having endless brunch, they're going on fun trips with their friends, and the one thing that could get in the way of that is motherhood. And it's a very appealing vision, and this is why they support the Democratic Party in large numbers, because they feel the Democratic Party supports that lifestyle and supports the notion that they don't have to depend on a man to provide these things. They just have the state or, you know, other forces in society to provide these things for them that they would have in the past in traditional societies would have had to rely on a man for or rely on their family for. And they no longer have to do that. And so this is a very appealing vision for a lot of women. I think, you know, biologically, they're still driven to have children and to be a mother, but they're conflicted and they don't have the proper guidance. They don't have the proper leadership because women often need leadership and they don't, or rather they lack that leadership and what they listen to what society is telling them because they're often herd animals and uh, they're just fine with sticking it out till you know staying <laughs> staying at home and bragging about how they're sleeping in and don't have to have a kid waking them up and you know they can watch as much trash tv as they want all day without having to worry about kids getting in the way and they feel they have as much time in the world to find Mr. Right. It's like, you know, there's like women in their mid-30s who will still say, I'm still looking for Mr. Right. And it's like, uh, you don't have much time to look for Mr. Right anymore. But they still, they feel how they can live out this lifestyle up until they're 40. And when at 40, you know, they realize they can't live it out. But, you know, there's just a, there's a level of unlimited freedom for women or the, or, or the appearance of freedom for women and it's hard to convince them that they should um, be skeptical of that or give that up for the sake of family formation, but they don't want to. And maybe it's the same with men, but I think with men, it's like they don't have the income. They don't have uh, the type of power that they would have had and the privileges they would have had in a past society as, as husbands that now... They view the husband as somebody that they can, the women could easily dump and then take all their resources from. And they don't really have the authority given to them in past societies as being the head of the household. Or they're even, may not even be the head of the household. And also their, you know, the income and other things are going down relative to women. So they may not be able to provide that head of the household model that was dependent on more traditional families. So it's something to keep in mind with the, whenever these family formation debates happen and stuff. But it, like you look at this woman and you wonder, like, why do all these single women vote for Democrats and all this? But this woman confirms that women are the biggest supporters of the status quo. They're not interested in overthrowing the order and replacing it with a more traditional order. At least most women aren't. And more women are like this young woman that everyone's dunking on than other alternatives. And I think winning them over is going to be difficult because like you can sympathize with them. It's like, what do you talk about your favorite 
like Kardashian with them or your favorite your favorite series of the real housewives like what are you what are you supposed to do to appeal to these women I think it's you, know, you maybe should say that oh you shouldn't be so harsh on them or you should be more understanding but I, I don't think that really matters I think it's more of just realizing the bigger point of just seeing this video and you're wondering like why are women so supportive of the status quo and it's like because it offers them this lifestyle that they would have never had before and they seem content with it they may not be happy with those decisions as they grow older but at this moment they're very happy and content with it and it's hard for to for anons and matt walsh to convince them otherwise on the internet so that's just my thoughts on it uh obviously it's a topic we talk about a lot <laughs> Highly respected, and we will return to it in the future. But that is it for the regular topics. Now on to the cognitive elite questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the cognitive elite option at highly respected Substack, and that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. So we have a lot of questions today. Some of them are going to be require lengthier answers. Some of them are require very short answers. But the first question, it's a two-parter, and it comes from Dave. And Dave asks, he was wanting to know my thoughts on whether there will be a backlash to Republicans trying to do impeachment on Biden. And we'll get to the second part, which is also dealing with congressional politics. And that first question, you know, the, everyone always says, you know, when you look at polls, it looks like there's some, there's a large degree of support for Biden, impeaching Biden. And if you look at the legal justification for impeaching Biden, it's there. You know, they have a lot of evidence of corruption. They also have the dereliction of duty around immigration. You know, he's not enforcing immigration law. There's a lot of things that you, they could use to impeach Biden over. But they don't really have the key thing to pitch it to the American public. And there's also the worries over these moderate congressmen who don't want to vote for this because they'll see, you know, in their district that Biden won, they'll see this as engaging in frivolous um, politicking or as something that, you know, they're not focusing on the real issues by engaging in impeachment. So they think they'll lose independence by doing this. And I don't think they have the core issue yet to file impeachment against Biden. You know, they could say immigration. They're actually not going to go with immigration. They're not going to go with the dereliction of duty angle. They're even moving on from wanting to impeach Mayorkas, which that looked like guarantee that they're going to impeach Mayorkas. And they've decided that they don't really like the dereliction of duty because they feel that, oh, Democrats could then use this standard against Republicans in the future, which this really dispels the Republican and conservative argument I kept hearing against Trump's indictment is that, they're opening up uh, Pandora's boxes that this could then happen to Democrats. It's not going to happen to Democrats. Uh, I, you know, maybe if a Republican is in office in 2025, they may do charges against Biden, or at least they'll go after Hunter Biden. I do think I think it will be guaranteed if there is a Republican in the White House, and the next there will be serious federal charges against Hunter Biden. Will there be charges against Joe Biden? I'm a little bit skeptical. Um, maybe if it, Trump would probably want to do that, but I don't, I don't know if his attorney general would go along with it, but, um, that's something to consider. I don't think, but even if you look at Republicans in Congress, you know, they impeached Trump twice and they're like, oh, you're setting a precedent that we're going to do this. Well, 
they have the majority in the House and they're reluctant to impeach Biden despite all this. And they don't want to impeach him over dereliction of duty and immigration. It's not going to be over immigration. It's just going to be over family corruption, you know, the Biden's family stuff. But they're trying to find the smoking gun or the concrete example of it, which they have yet to find yet. Most likely what's going to happen is that they're going to set up an impeachment inquiry which is on the process of to having an impeachment vote. And they'll just let the inquiry be there for till, you know, there's a new president. <laughs> or if Biden's re-inaugurated, who knows? They'll kind of keep, they're not actually going to probably do an impeachment because one, they'll never have the votes for an impeachment. Unless there is something where they find proof that Biden is president and he talks to G and it's like, I'm going to do everything in my power to work for your interests if you hand me over $50 million. You know, unless there's something like that, which they're probably not going to find, they're, they're not going to impeach him. They don't have the votes for impeachment, and it's going to look stupid. There's probably no worse optics than to have an impeachment vote and for it to fail. It would just not work, and that would just make them look weak and impotent, which is a lot of these Republican grandstanding and power moves that they've tried to do, which has made them look not very strong in these cases. So they're going to have the, those issues going forward. There wouldn't be a, quite of a national backlash, but it would be used against these Repub these moderate Republicans in these vulnerable, di vulnerable districts uh, that Biden won or Biden was close to winning in 2020. And they really don't want to have this put to a vote. And it can be used to unseat these guys. Which I think in a Trump impeachment is that people simply didn't care about the Trump impeachment. Because, you know, Democrats cared about it. But then Republicans and a lot of independents just like shrugged their shoulders and they moved on and forgot about it. And that would probably happen with most, you know, races is that it wouldn't factor in. But for these vulnerable moderates, it would definitely factor in. Nobody ran on, no moderate Democrat had to worry about voting for impeachment against Trump. They didn't have to worry about losing their seat over that. But vulnerable Republicans do. And, you know, they're, have, they're facing a very tough election in 2024 already. And it would be just adding to their growing list of worries. I think it would be right to impeach Biden. But they really haven't, and I think even over the immigration angle, it would be enough. But they don't have the votes for it. They don't even have the votes to impeach Mayorkas, who would be, should be easier. And they're worried about the backlash, and they're worried about the electoral results. And for those you know, handful of moderates in, this, in the House, I think there would be that. So I don't predict there will be an impeachment. I think they'll just have an impeachment inquiry. You know, that'll be used to satisfy House conservatives and the base. And they're saying we're working on an impeachment, but they'll never have to go to an impeachment vote because one, it would fail. They'll never have the votes for it. That would be a, a really bad look for Republicans. And even if they do have a vote for it, they can Democrats can then go in these moderate districts and say, oh, look, this is what Republicans do in a majority. They impeach our president over over a frivolous matter. It, of course, it won't be a frivolous matter, but they'll have the mainstream media on their side and it will not be driven by the type of animating force that there was behind in the Trump impeachment. Now, the second question from Dave, he asks, what are my thoughts 
on the replacement of Mitch McConnell because Mitch McConnell is having a lot of obvious health problems where he, you know, he keeps having press conferences where he freezes up and he can't say anything and it looks like he's just in a daze. And so there's now calls for him to resign and that would obviously mean a new leader of the party in the Senate. And the one thing about McConnell is McConnell has been a bad force for Republicans or at least for when it came into the Trump administration, a lot of people were wondering, like, why didn't Trump do a lot of the things he promised, especially like pulling out of Afghanistan and a couple other things. A lot of it was due to Mitch McConnell and his intense influence that he had over Trump. And McConnell is, of course, a huge war hawk and he's bad on a lot of issues. But his replacements, unfortunately, are slated to be even worse. And there have been some good things about Mitch McConnell. He was very good about the forcing through the judicial appointments. And he was also probably the best thing he ever did was he prevented Merrick Garland from being seated on the Supreme Court. He just held out that, you know, when they, you know, Obama nominated him and he just said, we're not going to have a vote on this. We're not going to consider it. We're going to wait till the president's, we're going to wait till the White House uh, until after the presidential election. That allowed Trump to nominate uh, his own appointments, his uh, Gorsuch, who, you know, Gorsuch, of course, has his problems, but it was definitely better than Merrick Garland. And this was due to McConnell holding the line. I think his replacements would never would not hold the line on this. The replacements are is three Johns that are r- rumored. It's John Thune, John Barrasso, who I don't know much about Barrasso, but I do know a lot about the third John, which is John Corden. John Corden is probably the most likely. John Thune is a bit of a lightweight. He does he doesn't seem to be, you know, a real leader. Uh, he is the minority whip at the moment, but I don't see him as having that gravitas and that presence to lead the Republican uh, Senate caucus. I think it'd be more likely to be Cornyn. Cornyn, who had previously served as a minority or party whip for years in the 2010s, he's still a major party leader and he would definitely be far worse than McConnell. I don't know, like Barrasso, I guess, would maybe be the best choice in this, but like Barrasso isn't that, you know, Barrasso is a big time moderate. He may be more, I think all three of them would be more willing to work with the other side to do things. Like if they had this situation, say Republicans gain the majority in 2024, the Senate majority, but they lose the White House. And it's very likely that another Supreme Court justice could die or retire in that time. Would any of them hold up and refuse to hear a nomination for a Supreme Court judge? I don't think so. I think they would work to to approve him and say, we're going to work to come together to bring this country together. Cornyn especially. Cornyn is really bad on a variety of issues that we care about. He's been trying to seek a bipartisan solution, solution in quotation marks, of course, to immigration. He's always He's been trying to find ways to give amnesty to the dreamers. He's been trying to find ways to boost guest worker visas. He was the person who proposed Juneteenth as a national holiday. You know, all these things, terrible things. It's like Cornyn. Cornyn loves the idea of working with the other side, which McConnell, many of the bad things about him is he does not like working with Democrats. He is very much a efficient and talented partisan in those matters. And he's very ruthless in getting what he wants done. I don't think they have that degree of ruthlessness. They don't have that degree of partisanship, which would make them worse than McConnell. 
And so if, if you had, you know, McConnell replace, I think a lot of people would say, you know, they see how bad McConnell is. They see his horrible health and they're like, all right, good. We're got rid of him. Now we have John Cornyn. You know, John Cornyn would definitely be worse. I think Thune would be worse because he would just be weaker and would be more willing to cave into the Republican or Democrats. Barrasso, as somebody I don't know as much about, but this was suggested by other people is like one of the Johns who could replace him. You know, he I think he would also probably be worse than McConnell as, as he is a moderate and that he would be more willing to work with the other side. But I think the unknown factors about him, he may be, be the best choice of those three. Other people, you know, there's not much of a deep bench of people who could replace McConnell. Like the conservatives are not going to replace him. Like it's not going to be John Kennedy. It's not going to be Ted Cruz. It's not going to be Josh Hawley. It's not going to be Tom Cotton. You know, maybe I could see Tom Cotton running for that position, but he'd probably not win. He's not like the most liked guy in the Senate. Uh, Rick Scott ran against him. Rick Scott would maybe be marginally better, but Rick Scott lost by a large margin against McConnell and when he ran against him uh, last year after the November election. So I don't think you're going to have like somebody, there's not somebody better waiting in the wings. And that's one really unfortunate thing because, McConnell is essentially, well, I could see him stepping down as leader if Kentucky elects a Republican. If Kentucky elects a Republican this November, then he would like, I could see him resigning. And knowing that whoever's the Republican in, uh, in the governor's mansion will then appoint a solid Republican to replace him. And he will be comfortable, comfortable with that. So I th could see him resigning if Republicans win in Kentucky. But if he Republicans don't win, then he will probably stay in the Senate. Uh, he may step down from his leadership role, uh, but whoever replaces him in the leadership role will likely be worse. And so I would say out of the three, I would say Barrasso would probably be the best. There's an unknown factor around him. You know, he does have like a look that makes him look like hard, like no, no bullshit kind of guy. So I think he could keep the caucus together and force them to, you know, be more partisan. We want a more partisan Senate caucus, I think. I actually don't think we do want that. And But Thune, I think, is a lightweight. He would not be, I think he would be a bit of a pushover. I think he would also be more willing to work with Democrats. And Cornyn would be the absolute worst because he is very open that he wants to work more with Democrats. And he wants to work with more with Democrats to pass some form of amnesty and increase immigration and to find another federal holiday for blacks to celebrate. So I, if I had a bet on who it would be, Barrasso is always next to McConnell and when he gives these press conferences. So maybe it might be Barrasso who might be the most likely. I don't think Thune would win, but I mean, maybe he would. Uh, but I think if he was a, Corden would absolutely be the worst. And I would probably at this point, say Corden may have the best shot at it because he has this large presence. He has a large charisma. He has a lot of stature and status among his fellow Republicans. But he would obviously be the worst replacement possible for McConnell. Uh, Barrasso would probably be the best. So that is my... There could be other things about Barrasso that could come up that maybe change that. But he would definitely be better than Cornyn. All right, we still got plenty more questions to go. The second question comes from Mystery. That's a long one. He's like, if you take the 
view that the turning point of the 20th century was the crisis, the modern state's legitimacy of the interwar period, you'll notice that Germany had a leftist government, and so naturally the left got blamed for the crisis and a right seized power. Same pattern in Italy, albeit a decade earlier. In France, the situation is reversed, and you get the socialist Leon Bloom. In America, conservatives were steering the ship of state in 1929, so naturally the response was a hard left turn, which set the ideological trajectory for decades. What do you think of this theory? Nordicism was popular with the New England establishment in the 1920s. If America had a liberal government in 1929, do you think a right-wing FDR equivalent could have been elected? Is there an alternative history where the gay is a conservative and identitarian force? Or was the leftist feature always in America's DNA? Um, that is a very good theory to have. I don't know, but if it's, you know, if Nordicism was so popular in the 1920s, you know, obviously the Republicans were going to be the dominant party of the 1920s. It's like all the elements that I think we would uh, have sympathy for, from the nativism, the racial theories, immigration restriction, all this stuff that, there's all their theory things I don't think we would have liked is the type of uh, retreating from, you know, having a government that's just focused on ensuring that, you know, business stays moving, which I guess we wouldn't have that much of an opposition towards, but America lost any kind of type of sense of purpose. It was just like, we're focused on making money and that's it. And that became problems when, when FDR promoted a more idealistic vision and a broader, a grander vision of America. And that won over a lot of people. I don't know if it, it you know, if there was a liberal government in the twenties, but none of the Democrats they really went up against in the twenties were very liberal or very progressive. You know, they were all, you know, very similar in their in their views of what government should be like as the Republicans who were running the state. So I don't know. In, in all these cases, it was that the people were demanding a more activist government that was going to come in and intervene into the economy and into the way the country is run to make them make a better country in all three cases, whether it was Italy and even when Mussolini was, you know, came to power, you know, it's unclear whether it was really right wing or a left wing phenomenon. You know, obviously it was very anti-communist, but, you know, there was, uh, you know, what is fascism in that when it first came to power? It was promising a more activist government, a stronger government, a bigger government. And that would have been the same in all the, both in the case in Germany and in France. So I think you're always going to get a more activist government after the Great Depression because these people were saying, well, you know, the free market is not solving this problem. You know, small government's not solving this problem. We want bigger government. Could, have, could it have been a bigger government that was less dedicated to social liberalism and social progressivism? Perhaps. I don't know if it was wholly dependent on the fact that the 1920s had such a conservative governance that that's what it led to FDR. I think it was the unique dynamics of the people involved in the FDR administration. I think it was also that FDR was trying to build this grand coalition of various minority groups that he was trying to appeal to, and that made it for a greater push to be America, to be culturally more progressive. So it's something to consider. I don't know, I, would dis I wouldn't say a leftist feature was always in America's DNA. I think it's historical events and the figures in charge that made America the way it is. 
But I don't, I, it would have always been a more activist government would have come into power after the 1920s um, and in response to the Great Depression. I think the real question is, is whether it would have been as hard and pushing social progressivism as the FDR administration, the New Deal, and Eleanor Roosevelt and these various people who were in power and influential during the New Deal era. So that's my answer to that question. Now, two questions from Tom. We still, and we still have got a lot more after this one. Tom asks, one, what are the politically feasible solutions to the problem of Ivy League schools being taken over by liberals? Well, that happened a long time ago, but I think it's, you know, you do want more. There is really the way that you really have to try to win over these people, not like winning over liberals, but winning over the type of, I the students at these schools and trying to convince them to be more conservative and right wing. I don't there is ways we could try to punish these schools and try to lessen their importance but I don't I don't really see that happening in the time being. I think there does need to be a greater push to trying to win over the type of people who went to Ivy League schools and the alumni and the current students as and trying to make it you know because their student population if you look at how much they vote democrat it's like over 90 percent are democrat voters i think it's a way that we need to look at figure out solutions to winning over some of these people at these schools so it's not so as lopsidedly liberal most universities are going to be take are going to be run by liberals for as long as universities exist this has been the case in american universities for years and years and years uh, so it's not a new phenomenon. I just think it's now among the student population, it's so overwhelmingly Democrat and liberal, which is not, which wasn't the case before. And I think that's more of a, it's more of a call to figure out ways to appeal to the better students. You're not going to win over the worst liberals, but you can win over some of the students who are more skeptical of liberalism, but they vote Democrat just because that's what their social scene votes for. And that's what they do as good people. So there's something to work on that matter. For second question, as liberals destroy institutions, cities and states in the name of equality, do you think the business and cultural centers may move? It seems to be happening with California, but the process is very slow. Uh, business centers are moving to the South and are to more red states. Cultural centers, um, not so much. I mean, Austin, you know, in Texas, it's always been a very left-wing city. Uh, and it's always been a cultural hub. It's about the same as it was before. I think the cultural hubs are always going to be L.A. and New York. I don't think they're going to decamp to Atlanta. Well, Atlanta's like liberal. I don't think they're going to decamp to Little Rock, Arkansas. That's a better example. Uh, but the business centers are definitely moving to more business-friendly states in the South and, and red states uh, throughout the country. Because like Nashville, you know, the Atlanta area, Florida, you know, as Ron DeSantis says, and Florida, everyone's coming here. And Texas, Dallas, so a lot of the business centers are moving outside of these cities. I don't think the cultural centers were moved because, you know, I, I don't think you'll ever get those people to convince them to move away from New York City or Chicago, and even the cities they choose are the most left-wing cities in the South, such as Austin. Uh, so you'll definitely see the business centers move. Um, but a lot of conservatives don't like that because they're like, we need to make sure that none of these people move. And it's like, well, if you want to say how awesome a state is Florida is, and it's a lot of like how prosperous it is, it does mean that these businesses move. 
And a lot of people who make this argument are people who just moved to Florida in 2021 or 2022 who are like, we need to ban all newcomers from coming to our states. And it's really stupid because a lot of these people coming there are, you know, Republican. Some of them aren't. But it's also just a nature. It is it is a bad move if you say we we need to keep our state poor in order to stay conservative. It's not the best pitch for your own side if, if poverty is associated with it. So you just need to figure out how to make sure that these you're not importing the worst liberals, which I think that comes with cultural centers. Because if you look at even the really left-wing places in, in North Carolina, like the Raleigh area and Asheville, you know, those will be considered somewhat cultural hubs. And that's attracting kind of the worst libtards. And Austin, Texas is a very good example as well. So it's better if you have a business, you become a business hub rather than a cultural hub. Because you can compare this to like Dallas-Fort Worth area, which has a more, which is more Republican federally, more conservative. Same with Jacksonville, Florida, uh, compared to, you know, Austin and the Raleigh-Durham area. So, uh, yeah, if a cultural center's move, that'll just turn these states blue. But if the businesses move, it doesn't necessarily turn it blue. It could still stay red. And it's definitely happening to a large degree because all these blue states uh, ensure that businesses don't want to stay there. And red states are going to gobble it up. It just has to make sure that red states aren't turned blue in the process. Now for the next question. This is a short one. It comes from Jay. Jay asks, uh, what are my thoughts on the film Prince? It's from the Mystery Grove movie list. And he asked my thoughts about Prince of the City. I have never seen the movie. Um, it's a movie I want to see. So I can't really give my opinion on it without seeing it. But it looks good. And it's on my to-watch list. But I have not seen it yet. So that's my... <laughs> Maybe I should have tried to watch it before getting the question. But... Uh, we will, you know, if I do watch it, I will remember this uh, question and answer that for a future highly respected episode. But I have not seen it yet. So that is the answer to the fourth question. Very short question. Uh, obviously, maybe not what you wanted, but that is it. And to conclude our Cottonly segment, we're going to have a question from our favorite person. Uh, the person you all know has to answer a question. Or ask a question that comes from New England refugee and he says hey Scott after watching the debates in the recent political scene in general it is clear that libertarian influence on the right is diminished this is weird to me because I myself and many others have the journey from normie conservative to libertarian to nationalist and now it's no more Greg Hood said it's a natural process please explain why so many late millennials took the path I took and it, why it seems to have ended well, I don't know if it's quite ended. I just don't think people want to call themselves libertarians as as they did in the past. Because the reason why there were so many people who turned to libertarianism is because George W. Bushism and neoconservatism were discredited in the eyes of millennials. Millennials thought that like Bush sucked. They saw the Great Recession. They saw the Iraq War. They saw the horrible, stupid rhetoric of the Bush years and neocons. And they were like, I don't want to have any part of this. But they were also like, I don't want to be a liberal either. And then they saw Ron Paul become a thing in the 2008 primary and the 2012 primary. And he offered an alternative to neoconservatives, to neoconservatism and Bush. And so he, so people were like, okay, I'm now libertarian. Because that was a way of saying I'm right wing, but I'm also not like George W. Bush. I'm not like the neocons. 
And there wasn't really another alternative that maybe they were more nationalist or more paleoconservative, but there wasn't really that figure to say that there's something else, that they're America first or are nationalists up until Trump came about. And when Trump came about, then the new focus was Trumpism and America firstism and nationalism. And that became the driving focus of the right. And so that's why so many people switched over is that all these people who were looking for an alternative to neoconservatism eventually found that in Trumpism and said, this is closer to my real beliefs than Ron Paulism because there was all these goofy things that libertarians were doing and are still believe. And they then switched to Trumpism. But I don't think libertarianism is, is quite dead. I just don't think as many... The, the people who are actively political want to call themselves libertarians anymore because there's a lot of libertarian focus still on what the right cares about. If you look at the lockdowns, if you look at what the schools are teaching, the promotion of homeschooling, it's very much of this desire for a greater sense of liberty and individualism than, than from the state. And it's always still, conservatives are still couching a lot of their appeals in, you know, we're defending the liberty of the individual against the tyranny of the state. They may not call themselves libertarians anymore, but that's still motivating a lot of what the right cares about from vax mandates, lockdowns, you know, what schools are teaching, the right to homeschool, the right, you know, uh, worries over regulations when it comes to farming and raw milk. And so a lot of these things, you would have seen this stuff among libertarians a few years ago, but now these people are very anti-libertarian because they see libertarians as associated with a lot of goofball stuff such as whatever the Cato Institute is promoting at the time or, you know, opposition to driver's license. But it also comes down, this libertarian mindset still comes down to when people talk about the police, because the entire right, you know, they, they keep bringing up this uh, straw man of like, oh, fuck back the blue. We hate the police. Look at how they enforce lockdowns. And this stuff is incredibly popular on social media on right-wing social media. And that's still evidence of a strongly focused libertarianism than what I think a lot of conservatives want to admit. So it still has an influence on people, and there's still a degree of libertarian influence. Also, you can look at drug legalization, the popularity of weed. We, we criticize it on Twitter, but a lot of conservatives now love smoking weed, which drug legalization was a huge thing among libertarians. And that's what a lot of millennials over too. Um, unfortunately, is that they're like, hey, we're for legalizing pot, but we're also not liberals. And they're like, oh, hell yeah, I, I'm a libertarian too now. And now the fact that we have mass marijuana legalization and that a lot of conservatives are now okay with smoking weed, unlike before, you know, that reflects a, a libertarian influence. So there is probably, in some ways, more libertarian influence on conservatism and some of their aspects that they believe in, but people don't want to call themselves libertarian anymore. But a lot of what America is today, you know, after the lockdowns and everything, there is, it's a very much more of a libertarian country than before. Because we haven't really added much more regulations and taxes. Um, they haven't really been able to do that. They haven't been able to accomplish that. At the same time, we now have legalized marijuana, Abortion is left to the states, which is all these libertarians were advocating for. You know, there's gun gun rights. The ability to open carry is you now have greater ability to do that than ever before. Uh, so there's all these expansions of all these libertarian ideas that, you know, they were advocating for in like 2010. 
and now they've come to fruition now. And so we're very, but all these libertarians are still very angry <laughs> over the state of affairs, probably because there's all the things that they can't control. And also homeschooling has grown and some, several other things that libertarians were supportive of uh, before. So the, the country itself is probably, and we have now have gay marriage too, which a lot of libertarians were supportive of is that, you know, the state should get out of marriage, but obviously they didn't get that part, but so we very much, you can say we live in a very libertarian country in a lot of respects, but there still is this fear over what the, what the government can do and the fear of tyranny. And you're always going to have to couch, you know, I don't, as I, I'm a huge opponent of marijuana legalization and many of the other degenerate things libertarian support. But you still are going to have to appeal to liberty and freedom if you're going to want to win over people to our side. And you're really going to have to portray the opponents as tyrants and totalitarians. And there's a lot of us who find that cringe because they see what conservatives were saying about this for years and years. And they're like, they don't want to be associated with that. And they think it's much cooler to say, we're anti-freedom, we're anti-liberty. But that's a good way to marginalize yourself and ensure you're not winning over a large percentage of the population. So even if you are anti-libertarian or opposed to a lot of the things libertarians are about, you're still going to have to appeal to people's desire for freedom and liberty from the left-wing tyrants as a way to win over a large percentage of the population and convince people to support your ideas. So there is that type of folk libertarianism that you always have to appeal to, which that is separate from Cato libertarianism. But you do have to keep in mind, it's not quite, you know, the American uh, silent majority or the historic American nation are not really fascist in waiting. They are much more libertarian than I think a lot of the right-wing influences are what a lot of right-wing influences would prefer them to be. And that's just something you have to work with and cooperate in order to achieve political power. So that is my thoughts on that. And that is it for this today's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. We are going to have an IQ supplement later this week and another great highly respected column. So look out for that. So until next time, stay respected.